Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. This week we'll be talking about the book Noise Matters Towards an Ontology of Noise, which is by Greg Hange. Greg is a reader in French at the University of Queensland over in Australia, and he's written a fascinating book that cuts across a whole different range of subjects, uh, but starts with a critical theory. Hello and welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. This week we'll be talking about the book Noise Matters Towards an Ontology of Noise, which is by Greg Hange. Greg is a reader in French at the University of Queensland over in Australia, and he's written a fascinating book that cuts across a whole different range of subjects, uh, but starts with a critical theoretical take on what noise is, what noise might be, and what noise's potential might offer contemporary society. I'm delighted to have you on New Books in Critical Theory, particularly because your book, I think, is a, a kind of classic contribution to critical theory in a whole range of different traditions, both the sort of the French Deleuzian kind of tradition, but also it reminded me a lot of, I guess, more uh, sort of mainstream Frankfurt School kind of discussions around industrial production of uh, particular cultural form. We might kick off by you saying a bit, a bit about um, sort of who you are, what your role is, um, and sort of your, uh, I guess, kind of intellectual trajectory. Um, so you're a reader in French, is that correct? That's right. So reader in French, um, which is one of those lovely antiquated titles um, at the University of Queensland. Um, so I moved out to Australia in 1999, having done my PhD um, back in the UK at the University of Nottingham. And that was much more, I mean, you know, it, it, it had the philosophy background to it, but it was much more hardcore, straight literary studies. So I did a PhD on um, Louis Ferdinand Céline, who, if you know anything about him, is one of the most controversial men of French letters and uh, you know, got himself into lots of trouble through his life. But um, And he's known really mostly as one of France's most infamous kind of pseudo-fascists. And I interfaced um, him with Deleuze and Guattari, um, which I thought was a kind of an interesting move to interface, you know, one of France's most infamous pseudo-fascists and one of uh, their most uh, hated men in French culture, actually, with the thought that um, Foucault obviously termed as resolutely anti-fascistic thought. Um, and, and I think it was right from that, uh, right from the get-go when I started really doing my own research that I was really interested in those kind of clashing juxtapositions of what happens when you started to put things together that didn't normally seem to fit together um, to try to produce different readings of them. Um, so I moved out to, uh, to, to Adelaide to begin with when I first came to Australia, and I carried on doing the sort of the general normal kind of things that a, a French studies academic does, you know, so I did all of my language teaching, culture teaching, started to teach film and um, researched that, still doing a lot of literature stuff. 
But I think I was going a little bit stir crazy having done the PhD, I think, as everybody does when they've done one. And I wanted to do something yes. completely yeah. different. And I was um, in the environment in Australia at that time. It's the, the notion of discipline almost didn't exist at all um, as a kind of imperative to follow a certain line. The important thing was that you published in quantity, and that was it. So I just started really uh, researching things that I liked, regardless of whether they seem to have any obvious link to French studies or not. And I guess it's, in a sense, that trajectory that led me to a project that's as um, diverse as the, as the one that uh, you've just gone through, uh, this book, Noise Matters, which you know, covers all kinds of different realms. And it's almost like... Um, a history of the things that I've been thinking about for many, many years now, because it has taken a long time to, to do it and to finally get it done. That's interesting. I, I, I sort of get the impression from what, what you said there that this wasn't um, the usual uh, academic career path of doing your PhD and thinking, I should turn this into a book. Uh, yeah, I did that as well. So there, there's a book um, before this one, which is just on Celine. Oh, um, yes. yeah. So I, I, I did that. Um, and I think this one sort of, the genesis started in some earlier articles and doing some editing stuff with uh, people like Paul Hegarty. Oh, yes. uh, and just thinking about noise and experimental music. But, it, you know, it wasn't actually just the noisier side of things that I was interested um, in originally. I wrote something on Radiohead, then I started getting into American independent cinema and did stuff on Lynch, now, who's actually ended up in the book. Mm-hmm. But um, there was uh, other stuff that I published on Lynch in, in collections before that. I did some stuff on higher education policy. So it really was this kind of strange environment where as long as you were putting stuff out, you didn't necessarily have to think so much about whether you were situating yourself within any sort of definable discipline such as French studies. And I think it was really interesting. And that's led to something that I think I would, that I'm very pleased with, but that I think is, is much harder to do in the environment that we're living in in Australia at the moment, certainly. And from what I know about the UK system still, I think it's probably the same there because as much as people talk about the whole idea of interdisciplinarity, it strikes me that a lot of the funding bodies and the ways in which we set ourselves up within departments or schools or whatever you decide to call them actually fosters this incredible kind of territorial behaviour that actually stops some of those interesting clashings and juxtapositions from taking place. Yeah, it's fascinating you make that point, actually, because um, the UK is obviously just... Um, in the middle of the research excellence framework and that um, drive towards cross or interdisciplinary work is something that I think is quite inhibited by the idea that you'd be judged on your contribution to a discipline. At the same Mm -hmm. time, funding seems to be going really um, straightforwardly in the direction of um, contributing to breaking discipl- disciplinary boundaries and kind of uh, destroying them, really. And, and it's fascinating to see your, your book situated within that because um, it's, I guess, easy to call it critical theory, but it's film studies, uh, it's got discussions of photography, um, it has contributions to uh, music theory as well, and so it's kind of consciously crossing those academic disciplines. 
Um, yeah. which made it fascinating. It's going to cause a real problem. I mean, we've got an, we've got an equivalent of the, your, um, what are you now? The ref, is it? The ref, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've got something called the era, the excellence in research for Australia. Um, and we've got all of these disciplinary codes that, you know, your work has to be classified under. Yeah. And, uh, of my senior colleagues who took care of our submission last time, um, had some troubles already with some of my work, knowing precisely what code to put it under because it just didn't really fit particularly well. And uh, when he saw my book, he was like, man, I'm glad I'm not doing that job next time because I wouldn't know <laughs> where I was going to put this one. And it, it, that might be a good, uh, a good moment to turn to the book because I guess rather than classifying it based on, on its disciplinary area, we might think about trying to classify it on its subject which is this subject of noise matters towards an ontology of noise. And I guess maybe a, a sort of interesting question both for myself and for the listeners would be, what is noise? <laughs> what, what is the object of your study? Okay, what is noise? I mean, I think that's it's, – it's such a complex and interesting question, which is why I really got intrigued by it and ended up you know, writing this book about it. There's lots of different definitions of noise. Okay, so you've got, for instance, the classical common sense definitions of noise by which it's going to be some normally loud sound or some kind of disagreeable sound. Hmm. Uh, you've, then you've got all kinds of definitions of noise within communications theory. You've got all kinds of definitions of noise within physics. Uh, you know, then if you look at physical definitions of noise, you can start to think about all different shades of noise and you can have, you know, uh, white noise, pink noise. And, and the, it, it's such this, it's such a rich term that everybody seems to know or seem to think that they would automatically know what noise is. And yet when you start probing at some of those d definitions, they really seem to problematize themselves and to start falling apart. So if you just take the most basic common sense definition of noise as for instance, unpleasant sound, I mean, it, that's necessarily subjective. Um, so, you know, I can be listening to, for instance, let's think of uh, one of the noise musicians that I look at in the book, Merzbo. Mm. Yeah, anybody that knows Merzbo's music will uh, understand how it operates. And I mean, there's probably not many ways to describe it um, in our languages we and the words we have at the moment other than to say it's kind of huge slabs of tectonic noise crashing into each other um you know and lots of kind of sonic detritus and scree slamming around the place and going from one speaker to the other the kind of stuff that when you put on and somebody doesn't know what it is they think there's something gone dreadfully wrong with your stereo <laughs> but you know for but to say that's unpleasant is deeply problematic for me because I really love listening to it. Not all the time, you know, like any music, you've got to be in the, in the right mood for it. But I absolutely defend the point that it is music. And there you get into a problem as well because for many people and, and many definitions or, or common sense apprehensions of noise, it is figured as that which is opposed to music. And so you start running into all of these problems when you think about it in terms uh, in those kinds of terms, because you realize that the definition is absolutely subjective and and that 's normally what not what you want definitions to do. You actually want the definition of a word to be able to stand up to objective scrutiny that 
um, division, I think, between uh, music and noise uh, is something that becomes very important in uh, a couple of the chapters, but, but really kind of clearly in, in the initial chapter where you discuss people like John Cage and his uh, four minutes, 33 seconds. Um, and I wonder if yeah. you could say a bit about how that, that division plays out and your sort of, I think, provocative, but, but very interesting and, and possibly quite accurate reading of, of Cage's work. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Cage normally, the, the reason I go to Cage, and I, and I almost didn't want to, because every time there's been a lot of books written about noise in the, in in the past, uh, especially maybe five to seven years, there's been a whole swathe of books that have come out on the subject of noise, um, and even before that, but in these books also, he sort of figures as one of those uh, beer moths that you just can't go past. You know, if you're going to talk about noise, you've actually got to confront Cage head on. And normally because of the most infamous piece, four minutes and 33 seconds, which, you know, just in case there are still any uh, listeners out there that don't know about this piece, um, the performer is instructed in the score just to sit at their instrument, whatever the instrument may be. It's very often a piano, but it doesn't have to be, to sit at the instrument and to mark off time um, in four movements and the whole piece is, lasts four minutes and 33 seconds. So the idea is that the ambient sounds of the performance venue, the cars going past outside, maybe the rain on the roof, the coughs of people sitting in the audience actually become the performance itself. So this is really thought of as his noisy piece. But if you actually look at what Cage said about it, and this point's picked up really well by Douglas Kahn, um, whose work I draw on um, in that chapter on Cage. Cage's idea was actually about pan-musicality. He actually wanted to integrate everything into the realm of music. And that's where I start having a real problem, because precisely you've got what seems to be this binary of two things opposed, which suddenly falls away. And this is what you see again and again and again in discussions of, of, of the, the division between music and noise. And it's most prevalent, I think, in somebody like uh, the work of somebody like Jacques Attali. So Attali writes this very uh, famous book, Noise, the Political Economy of Music, I think it's translated as, um, where he says that, mu- that noise is kind of like this... Uh, political or progressive force that brings about change and that music is necessarily political and that it kind of foresees political changes that are to come. Okay. And so what forces that change to come? And this almost like, um, you know, the, the, the Kojab's reading of Hegel, where you've got that force that pushes things forward and brings about change. Um, for him, that's noise. So noise makes the the field of musical production change such that what was previously noise is now integrated into music, which means that you need a new form of noise to come along and to disrupt the status quo of music so that it can progress progress again and become something else. So it's almost like noise is this kind of avant-garde force. Now, that's all very well and good, but my problem with that is that you've kind of got this repeated... Uh, sort of transubstantiation of noise. Noise is always becoming that which it is supposed not to be. And I just think that that's really unsatisfactory as, um, as a sort of a methodology if you actually want to start thinking about ontology and what would actually be specific to the things that we talk about in and of themselves. And while I don't want to become 
you know, completely essentialist. I think it's important that you, you, you at least attempt to, to think about things like this in such a way that you are pinning down what is specific to them in such a way that that cannot be sublimated under something else, that it doesn't just get transubstantiated or transmogrified into something completely different. And I think part of this involves um, the kind of political um, potential of noise, uh, which obviously you draw from um, various um, theorists working at the kind of radical end of critical theory. Um, and from the text, I, I kind of get the impression that, that noise has a genuine uh, emancipatory potential, um, particularly as opposed to kind of those who'd wish to um, either co-opt it into um, other forms such as being uh, music or those who'd wish to um, kind of pin it down as silence and kind of get rid of it. And, and I'm, I'm interested in where that kind of political potential ties into some of the other discussions in the book. So, for example, you talk about uh, noise music and hi-fi, uh, you talk about horror films, th- this kind of thing. But the politics seems to shine through in every chapter. No, that's really interesting that you say that. Um, it, it's kind of surprising to me, actually, because I consider myself a relative political idiot. Um, <laughs> I, I don't um, generally think of the kinds of things that I do in terms of politics so much as aesthetics, but, you know, the, the, the realms are, unnecess- uh, are necessarily linked hmm. to a certain extent, obviously. Um, I mean, I, I was very much reminded, I think I said this earlier, of, of that kind of Frankfurt School moment of, you know, the bringing together of, of the aesthetic and the kind of the possibilities that the aesthetic offers um, for political uh, transformation. Well, well, let me put it this way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lovely point that you make, and, and I'm glad that, that's, that you see it in that way. I guess why that's happening is perhaps because I'm trying to figure noise in a slightly different way. Okay, so let me just map that out um, very briefly. I actually take a lead from communications theory to try to think about noise in a, in a different way that wouldn't just fall prey to the problems that I see in all of those common sense theories. So think about a communication system, okay? You've got your signal coming from the emitter and going to a receiver. And there you've got a channel. And generally, noise is figured as something almost like this disembodied entity that enters into that channel as a disturbance to the signal. Now, my problem with that is that Noise doesn't actually exist in isolation. Noise actually only ever arises as part of the communication as it is taking place or part of the expression as is going across that system. And what you'll find is if you look at almost any communication system, the noise isn't coming from the outside as this kind of separate disembodied entity. It's actually arising as an unavoidable artifact of the communication system that you've actually set up and put in place. So noise is absolutely necessary. You just cannot eradicate it out of any communication or any expression because it's it's almost like in itself the expression of the remainder, let's use that term, of the system that is required for there to be communication in the first place. Now, the rub comes, of course, because very often it is seen to disrupt the desired content of the communication system. So noise on a telephone line, for instance, is going to disrupt the possibility of understanding what somebody is saying to you from one end to the other. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Yeah, just like here. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful irony. But you... 
you can't get rid of it. It's always going to be there. And so what's interesting for me is to sort of extrapolate out from that and think about that in terms of all kinds of different ontologies or all kinds of different expressions. So how does photography express itself? How does literature express itself? How does music express itself? And for me, the key to really rethinking those questions is to think about it through this figure of noise, of thinking about noise as something which tells us about the precise system that is put in place in order for an expression to come about in the first place. And I think it hopefully leads to some uh, very different kinds of interpretations to what might have been said about the things that I look at in the past. Yeah, I wonder if you could just uh, expand on those different interpretations, because obviously we talked already about the kind of rereading of John John Cage that you give, but um, you also look at things like uh, photography in terms of Tim Ruff's work um, and David Lynch's work as well in terms of Inland Empire and a razorhead. Yeah. Things that have got, um, I guess, a kind of an existing uh, body of critical literature around them, but you seek to contribute in a, in a sort of different way based on your... Um, kind of noisy position. And I wonder if you'd say just a bit about those examples. Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so let's take the case of uh, Lynch uh, to start with. And let's just say also that in the book, obviously, I start with examples in which you can find some kind of explicit form of noise, Mm, you know, the common sense kind of noise. Um, So with Lynch, obviously, you've got his soundtracks. There's all kinds of sort of industrial soundscapes going on in his works. Um, If you look at a Razorhead, the sound of the the vinyl scratchy record plays a really, really important part. And and I think he's deliberately keys us to pay attention to those moments because it really carries on um, at points in the movie where you wouldn't expect it to yeah. be there. It, it's With the, a classic bit of noise, isn't it? A razorhead, you know, it's exactly what yeah. you'd expect people to say yeah. when they talk about noise, you know, is that kind of uh, soundtrack to a razorhead, you know, they might point to that as a, um, a kind of core bit of noise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, for instance, the, the photographs of Thomas Ruff, uh, he does lots of series of photographs using JPEGs. So he uh, regrids JPEGs that he finds on the internet of different kinds of subject matter. Um, he regrids them so that the artifacts of the JPEG are actually increased. So the JPEG starts regridding upon itself, which increases the sense of pixelation that you get from a JPEG. Then he blows them up to massive gallery uh, exhibition uh, size, uh, normally about two by three meters or something, so that you you see every single pixel um, and so there, you know, the pixelation of the image, that's thought about some kind of a visual noise normally, the kind of thing that you would normally elide in order to actually see uh, the desired content, the image itself. And the really interesting thing with, with rough photographs is that normally, you know, to see something, you need to uh, go up closer to see more details. But with his photographs, you actually, that's completely reversed. You actually have to move back from them if you actually want to try to see what the actual content of the image is going to be because when you're anywhere near it you can't make out anything because it's just this kind of pure wash of color and pixels and so it's really interesting for me the fact that those kinds of that that kind of noise is sort of made 
in such a way that you, you're, you're forced to rethink something about what photography is and what your relation to the image is and how the image is actually formed. The same thing with Lynch. You know, I think that uh, oftentimes that noise is actually wanting us to think um, about what's going on in the movies in a different way. And certainly the, the way I read it is that Lynch is very often talking to us about the act of making a movie. I mm, think he's yeah, absolutely yeah. wanting to talk to us about light, about electricity, about the wonderful kind of dream space that the theatre creates. But I think the trap that a lot of people have fallen into with Lynch is by taking the things that he says about dream and, you know, all of these stuff that he said about transcendental meditation and imagining that you can unproblematically, therefore, take some kind of pre-existing dream theory, you know, whether you, you know, you're a Freudian, Lacanian, whatever your preferred school is, and slamming it onto the films to explicate them in some way. Because for me, Lynch is so noisy, ultimately, because <laughs> you can't sublimate every single part of the movies into one coherent meaning. There's always that remainder. There's always something that grates, that refuses to make sense. So it's kind of like the noise. There's something that that just sticks out. It just kind of rubs. It annoys. It, it, it draws your attention to it in such a way that you can't possibly integrate it into this kind of perfect aesthetic sphere. Um, Rather, it sort of calls it. It calls you to it, and you and you really need to try and understand what it is. So, for me, the noise in Lynch is precisely about that. It's about the, their refusal to actually close everything down and to, and to have that thing that that still remains uh, itself fundamentally about what is happening in front of your eyes. Okay. But precisely, it's something that is happening. It's something that can't be closed down. You can't actually contain that. It's always going to be happening. And what, what's interesting, I guess, is it's only through an understanding of noise that you can kind of get to this, uh, this, this reading, get to this understanding of, the, of these works, which gives both um, a sort of added value of understanding noise, but also points to something about the nature of noise itself. And this kind of nature of noise is something that you, you really kind of focus on at the end of the book uh, with what you call your, your sort of project of a, of a new ontological taxonomy of music. Um, and I'm very interested in, in sort of both what that means and kind of why that's needed and what that might be based on your, your work on noise. Okay. Well, I, I guess, you know, if you're going to write a book on noise... Um, and in, in the field that people have been talking about noise, you've got to tackle the question of noise and music head on at some point. Mm, yeah. But as you, as you hopefully understood before, I mean, I'm absolutely not of the opinion that you can say that Merzbow is noise. Yeah, and Beethoven isn't. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, it's completely untenable. I just don't understand on what basis such a claim can be made. So I guess. But while the, the last chapter is is about um, noise in music, I guess, rather than noise and music. So I try to completely erase that idea that you can unproblematically assert that this, what some people might call music, for us is noise, whereas this stuff over here is fine and we're just going to call that music. On the contrary, I say that just like with any expression, I say all music has got noise in it. 
which is to say that all music on some level is actually telling us about the ways in which musical expression comes to be formed. All music on some level is actually telling us about its own timbre, about tone, about rhythm, you know, about all of those things that go into making up a musical composition. Now, very often you don't realise that, um, because there's a sense of perfection and necessity that emerges out of that perfect harmonic line. It's as though it could only ever have been that way. And I think that's wrong-footed a lot of people into thinking, well, music therefore necessarily obeys some kind of tonal precepts. Um, And if you actually look at very recent work that's been written in the philosophy of music, this is what people are still saying. You know, people are arguing about music ontologically as something that is necessarily based on tonal progression or certain kinds of harmonies. And so I guess what I'm trying to do in that last chapter is just to really debunk such an idea as completely culturally specific and possibly very elitist also. Because like I say, I I just can't begin to understand why or how you could in all seriousness mount um, a defensible argument that would exclude something like Mersbo from the realm of music whilst admitting some other things. Because if you, even if you think about different kinds of uh, cultural traditions that aren't, you know, traditional uh, musics of other countries, things like gamelan, for instance, would not be admitted as music by many philosophers of music. And so I'm really trying to, 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 to problematize that argument. And in order to do that, I guess I'm, I'm taking my key from the extreme noise music of Mersbo, and to think about the ways in which we might still be able to qualify what's happening there as music in such a way that the, the sort of uh, the precepts that are drawn up, the taxonomy that I draw up is applicable equally to Mersbo as it is to Beethoven or Mozart or to whoever you want to, 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 to cite. I mean, that, that's really interesting in terms of what, that might mean for, I guess, the kind of the, the public understanding of film, photography, and music, because obviously debates within the philosophy of music um, are often all about kind of demarcation of what is and what isn't included. But and sort of opening this up more broadly, did, what kind of I guess public contribution do you hope that the book might make um, in terms of our understanding of these these different areas and our understanding of noise? Well, you know, it's, that's, that's a, it's a great question, but it, it's one that I almost find the imponderable question. I, it's, you know, it's such an intensely personal project um, that it, 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 it's almost impossible for me to imagine what people are going to make of it. Sometimes I look at it and I just think, my God, it's just like everything I love. Is anybody else going to understand what the hell I'm doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I would hope that in the individual chapters, you know, for the people that are that are interested in the subject matter of the individual chapters, that it will actually help to open out um, some new readings of those things. Because, you know, I think it's really, really great work, all of the stuff that I've looked at, but that I think has sometimes been hampered by uh, certain kinds of critical responses that, for me, shut the works down. And for me, you know, noise is all about opening things out. It's about the exciting possibilities that you can get 
from thinking through things differently. Um, and it's really about, you know, there's that beautiful line in Deleuze uh, where he says, you know, the, the, the job of philosophy is to to take, to have battle with common sense, I think, or something like that. And, you know, I think common sense assumptions about things can be so, it's such a shame, it's such a sadness to when, when it's made, when they're made. And, and I think what I would like the book to do is to just make people to seriously rethink um, some of the things that they thought they had taken for granted and that seemed to be completely immutable to them. What I don't want to do, and, and I say this in the conclusion, and you know, whilst I'm proposing a very, very different definition of noise, it's absolutely not my uh, ambition to try to change the definition of noise and to say we can't talk about it in those terms anymore. You can't talk about noise as loud sound coming out of a nightclub when you live in the flat upstairs. You know, that would be <laughs> absurd to think that that was possible, and it's absolutely not what I want to do. But I do want, I guess, people if they're going to start bandying the term noise around and there is still so much stuff coming out on noise, you know, there's edited collections, you know, left, right and center coming out about noise and music, noise and politics, noise and this, that and the other. And I guess what I would hope is that within the field of noise studies, because it almost is a field within itself now, that it is going to make people be a little more careful about the ways in which they're using this term and that they aren't just taking this, you know, commonsensical assumption that everybody knows what noise is. Because like I say, you can push at those assumptions very easily and they start to unravel themselves. Which is the the kind of perfect, um, I guess, summary of of what the job of critical theory is is to do. You know, if if it's anything, it is that kind of challenge to uh, to common sense and the kind of unthinking use of, of particular ideas and particular terms. Just to round up, I mean, this might seem like a cruel and unusual question given the amount of kind of work you put into Noise Matters and the eclectic range of of ideas and examples that are in there, but what's your your sort of next project going to be? What what are you kind of working on at the moment? Uh, well, there's a few things in the pipeline, actually. You know, this got me excited about so many different things that it sort of end, opened up all kinds of possibilities. But just to go back to our conversation earlier about disciplinarity, um, the notion of discipline is becoming more important in Australia with the way that the research uh, framework is working. And... Um, I'm having to try to present myself as more of a strictly French studies scholar right. um, a lot of the time because, you know, uh, it's becoming a little bit problematic having the, the kind of free-floating sense of disciplinarity uh, these days because the way we judge uh, research uh, output and quality is fundamentally changing. So I'm trying to bring myself more within the realm of French studies and working a lot on the cinema in order to do that. So I've got two projects at the moment. I'm just, I've just started a monograph on the filmmaker Philippe Grandrieux, who's uh, done some absolutely amazing work both in video and feature-length films and documentary, and he worked in the TV for a while. And he's doing some performance stuff as well. In fact, just tonight, uh, as we're speaking, well, in, in a few hours' time in New York, one of his new pieces is being presented at the Whitney in, in New York. And so I think we're going to be hearing a lot about him in the coming years. And he's an, an incredibly interesting filmmaker who I think is doing something with cinema that we just haven't seen before. Um, it's a big claim, I know, but I think he's very, very interesting. So um, I'm writing a book on him. 
I've got another book in preparation, which is all about the kind of the cinema's relationship to uh, its viewer and the ways in which bodies figured on screen come to kind of uh, semi-co-opt the viewer's body such that there's, so that there's a kind of synergistic relationship between uh, bodies on screen and body of the spectator and thinking about the ways in which those relationships work as an in-between. So it's really very often drawing on this noise work again because there it's also about something that's actually taking place in the in-between of a communication system. Um, and very often in the, in the phenomenology of cinema, uh, there's this very sort of uh, over-subjectivized version, I think, of what's going on in the cinema. But I really want to think about the ways in which uh, the cinema or the, the filmic text itself has sort of agential capacity, that it is bringing something into the equation that you can't just think about the sensations in your body and, and talk about affect as though that explained everything that's going on. I mean... <laughs> They both sound like they really um, sort of break away from um, the boundaries of just French studies anyway. So even within um, the kind of confines of, I guess, the political economy of, of research funding and stuff like that, it sounds like your work is still doing those kind of boundary pushing, boundary crossing um, things that, that Noise Matters clearly does. Well, I hope so. I just hope that it's uh, it's going to be easier to get it funded this time. With if, if, you know, if I stick to French examples, the idea is that I look like a French studies scholar. Who knows? And I can give you the shameful confession if you want. There's there's one other thing that I've got very excited about recently. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Okay, because it just it made me think of it before when you were you were talking about this sort of delimitation of areas and stuff, and and when I was saying about uh, you know ontology and the, the point in Noise Matters ultimately is that even though the analyses that I'm proposing you know, work really well when you're dealing with something in which there's a very explicit form of noise that can lead you into a different kind of apprehension of how that text might be working, the ultimate ramification of what I'm saying is that noise is in absolutely everything. So any expression, no matter how apparently clean it may seem to be, is actually going to contain some form of noise and that you're going to arrive at a very different understanding of it uh, if, you, if, if you start to try to attend to what that noise might be, what it might look like, what it might sound like, because I absolutely don't think it's just an auditory phenomenon. Um, so the interesting thing for me in this cinema project is that I've had this kind of weird breakthrough recently because very often when people talk about, you know, cinema in serious philosophical terms, you know, and it takes place in Deleuze's cinema books, you know, you talk about a certain kind of cinema, you know, you're going to be talking about the Italian neorealists or, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to be talking about a certain bag of directors. Yeah, there's a, there's a and, canon of uh, serious cinema, isn't there? Absolutely, you know, and and some people have you know tried it with with other stuff to varying degrees of success, but we just had um, a, a, a break here with with the school holidays, and I took my kids to the movies, and you know I'm you know not going to see Antonioni or something when I go to the cinema with the kids. And we went we went to see Smurfs too, and I think I might actually be writing on Smurfs too in the near future because it's an absolutely fascinating movie and enabled me to see the ways in which what I'm thinking about in terms of the ontology of cinema 
can actually be applied equally to something else that I've been thinking about recently, which is um, Jean-Jacques Benix's film from the 80s, Diva. It applies beautifully in exactly the same kinds of way when you look at something like Smurfs 2. So that's the really exciting possibility for me at the moment. You know, that's my own little personal bit of noise that's disrupting everything that I believed in before. No, um, I might be riding on the Smurfs. That sounds great. And Smurf 2 is set in Paris, I believe. Is that? It is, exactly. It's just beautiful. Like, I don't want to give away my whole game here, but, you know, set in Paris in the Opera Garnier, you know, like Diva, Benix's Diva. And there's, if, you, if, if after this you are inspired to go and see Smurfs 2, all I'll say is pay very close attention to the narrator Smurf. It's absolutely fascinating what happens there. And there's a beautiful, beautiful moment in there as well about the shift from analog to digital technology as well as Gargamel's spell book or plan to, to bring about the demise of the Smurfs is put onto an iPad and, you know, and he comments how he loves the little swiping motion. Yeah, it's, it's great. There's a lot in there. I th- actually think it's quite a cluey movie. Well, I'll look forward to uh, hopefully having you come back on uh, New Books and Critical Theory to, uh, to discuss those uh, kind of comparisons and the, uh, yeah, and the noisy reading of Smurfs too. Uh, thanks ever so much for your time. It's a beautiful night to end on. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. So you've been listening to me, your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien, talking to Greg Hange about his new book, Noise Matters. Thank you for listening to this podcast on new books in critical theory, and we look forward to you joining us next time.